You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, church. My name is Sally. I'm reading from Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the men, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then, if, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days have passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept, but but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. 
And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to, to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seemed to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. These are the true words of the living God. Good morning. Can you hear me? Hello. Okay. Wonderful to be preaching today, and it's so good to be able to see new faces and faces that have come um, back from holidays. Uh, welcome back, and especially welcome to those people who are here for the first time today. As was said earlier by Gerald, for those who are newcomers to RHC or to ECP, you are more than welcome to attend the little lunch that we have afterwards, and it would be lovely to get to know you. So my name's Aidan. I'm one of the elders at uh, the ECP. And it's uh, my joy to be preaching from Acts 25 today. So a big thank you to Sally for reading that whole chapter for us. I hope you guys were able to stick to the text and, and understand some of the context. I will have to recap some of that slightly um, in a bit more detail later on. But let's, uh, let's get right into it. Today I want to talk about the defense of the gospel. And this idea of defense might be not something we, we think of on a daily basis. Uh, unless you're a lawyer, of course, you might be thinking about defense and prosecution. Or even a football player, you might be thinking about defense on the football team. But defense itself is usually something that we think of regarding ourselves, where we defend ourselves against some kind of accusation, we defend ourselves against um, some uh, attack of some sort. Perhaps it's a bully at school, perhaps it's a legal dispute, perhaps it's just a family member who's out to get us. Perhaps, like I said earlier, you're on a football team and you're just trying to stop that ball from getting in the goal. But the thing is, when we think of defense, it's often around ourselves. And I'd like to just broaden that category of defense to something larger than ourselves, something greater than ourselves. Defending your family, for example. Defending your nation. Defending your faith. Defending the gospel. And today we have the opportunity to look at Acts 25 where we see one of the greatest defenders of the faith, Paul, a man who was put on trial again and again for preaching the gospel, a man who was put on trial again and again just because he was a Christian, just because he was someone who seemed different to the customs and the ways of the time. And he was hated for that. And so hopefully as we walk through the text today, we'll be able to apply some of the truths, some of the principles that we see in this text to our own defense of the gospel. But let me give you a bit of a recap so we're not just thrown into the deep end as to what the context is. The book of Acts moves quite quickly all the way up to about Acts 20. And then in Acts 20, it starts to grind to a slow crawl as we are introduced to the trials of Paul and the defenses that he has to put forward to various tribunes and councils. In Acts 20, we see that he's on the home stretch of his third missionary journey. He's going back to Jerusalem against the advice of his peers. His peers have said, don't go back. If you go back, you will suffer. You will suffer hardship and affliction. In fact, prophecies were made about him. But he was resolute. He believed God had spoken to him and said, I want you. 
to go to Rome. And so he went to Rome. And the first thing he did in Rome, under the guidance of James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, was to go and purify himself in the temple, in accordance with the law. Because the accusations were that he was not a man following the law. He was turning Jews away from following the laws and the customs. And the Jews hated him. And he was saying, I'm doing no such thing. If you want to follow the Jewish customs, as well as be a believer in Christ, no problem. In fact, I'm going to show you by being um, of the law and purifying myself and entering the temple. And so he did that. And in so doing, he got mobbed. And they tried to kill him. To the point where the tribune had to come in, the Roman tribune had to come in and separate the Jewish um, mob from Paul in order to save him from what would eventually be a death. And so we see the series of trials in Acts 21, um, sorry, in Acts 22, he addresses these Jews in his first defense. In Acts 23, he addresses the Jewish council in another defense. In Acts 24, he stands before the, the governor, Felix, and the Jews, again, defending himself. And then we find ourselves in Acts 25, where we are today. At this point, Felix is no longer the governor. He's been replaced by a new governor whose name is Festus, which is a pretty cool name. And up until this point, Paul has been in prison for two years. It's one little sentence in Acts. Festus didn't know what to do. He decided just to leave him in prison. Can you believe it? What injustice. So Paul's left in prison for two years, waiting for some unknown time to come in the future where Paul might be released or something could happen. And Festus comes on the scene and he inherits the problems of Festus, sorry, of Felix, and he inherits Paul, another problem. And this is where we find ourselves at the very beginning of Acts 25. And if you like courtroom dramas, well, this portion of scripture might just appeal to you. And so this sermon is, has three points. And the first is the accusation. Secondly, the defense. And thirdly, the advocate. Gerald? Gerald's a lawyer. Do you approve? <laughs> yeah? Accusation, the defense, and the advocate. And so a big question might be, why is so much of the last portion of Acts, from Acts 20 to 28, focused on Paul's defenses? And just a few ideas, just to shape the context. I'd say, first of all, Luke, who is the writer of Acts, is probably a witness a first-hand witness of this entire account. So therefore, he knows exactly what went on. And he provides all these details so richly for us. Secondly, Luke takes great pains to show that Paul is innocent. He keeps claiming his innocence, which is really showing the Roman authorities that Paul was never a threat to Rome. He was never a threat to the way of Rome. And therefore, any persecution against Christians was unjustified, which was taking place at the time and would take place later. At a theological level, it shows us that the gospel will advance and will continue to advance to the ends of the earth, no matter what opposition comes its way. And this is seen in the fact that Paul arrives at Jerusalem by some uh, route that he never foresaw. And so ultimately, God is a God whose plan prevails regardless of any opposition from mankind. And through it all, Paul's role is to entrust himself to God, to trust in God's leading, guidance, and protection. And at the same time, to defend the truth, to defend the gospel that he so eagerly declares. 
And so what does this mean to defend the gospel? Well, firstly, gospel is the good news. It's a message of good news that God has sent His Son, Jesus, to die in the place of sinners, that sinners who put their faith in Him might be declared as justified, which means innocent of their sins, which means pardoned and forgiven. And this is not just good news, it's fantastic news, especially for a sinner who is not in right standing with God. And this gospel is what he is declaring. And this is the gospel that was under attack by the Jewish religion, or religious Jews of that day, religious people of today, but also those who did not know of religion, who were not Christians. And so this is the gospel he's defending. And so how does this apply to us? Two scriptures, Philippians 1 verse 7 speaks about Paul again, in prison, but writing to the Philippians. And he says, For you all, talking to the Philippians, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's saying, through the gospel, we are now standing in grace, and part of what we are together is to defend the truth of the gospel. The Greek word for defense is apologia, which derives, creates the word apologetics, which is a word um, we've come to know as defending the faith or being able to answer those who have queries or questions about the faith. But in fact, its real meaning is, is a legal term which talks of a defense attorney speaking on behalf of a defendant under attack by a prosecutor. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 speaks about being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And the defense here is the same word. So this is not just for Paul and the Philippians and for people of that time. This is speaking to all of us. Are we prepared to make a defense for the gospel? And in this context, we see that defense of the gospel is sharing our faith when it's being questioned. We see in Paul's context, it's defending the faith when it's being attacked. And even... The way we live our Christian lives is, in a sense, a defense of the gospel. Let's look at the story of Paul and see how, in Acts 25, this applies and how it uh, unfolds and how it applies to our own defense of the gospel. Number one, the accusation. From verse 1 all the way through to verse 7, we see the story of Paul unfolding. At the very beginning, Festus has been made governor of Judea for a few days. And according to history, his predecessor, Felix, was not the best governor. In fact, he was a brutal governor who put down some insurrections at the time very harshly. And it didn't look good on the Roman Empire. So they recalled him back to Rome, and in his place, they put Festus. And as said before, Festus came in and had to inherit all the problems of Felix. Festus, according to history, was a reasonable leader. He made good progress in strengthening Judea. But in this passage, we see him quite similarly to governors of previous eras, like Felix, and even Pilate with Jesus. He was a governor who would act to appease Jews rather than to stand for what was right, to stand in integrity. And so we continue to see this thread of injustice in the Roman dealings with Paul, just as we saw with Jesus. And so Festus arrives on the scene, third day into the job, what does he do? He goes to Jerusalem. Caesarea was at that time the place where the Roman uh, courts were. 
and he decides to go to Jerusalem in order to get in the good books of the Jewish council. Because Festus had made such a mess previously, sorry, not Festus, I'm always going to throw these, mix up these names, by the way. Felix, Felix had made such a mess that Festus had to go in and just smooth everything over and find out what was happening. So the first thing he does is he goes to Jerusalem. And what do the Jewish leadership ask for? The first thing they ask for, they've got a clean slate. They could really ask the governor everything, they, anything. They know that this governor is going to be um, open to, to some, some things because he wants to look, look good, right? The first thing they ask for is Paul. Paul who is in prison in Caesarea. They're saying, give us Paul. This is after two years. Two years of Paul being in a prison. Two years of Paul not preaching the gospel outside, not causing any trouble for them. That's the only thing on their mind. They've been holding a grudge against this man. They were enslaved by this hatred towards Paul. They were hooked. If we know the story of Paul, Paul was in the same hatred cycle. He was a man who was bent on hating Christians. He was a man bent on destroying Christians. And only when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road did hatred get flipped and it turned to love. And there's no human way to reverse this kind of enslavement apart from the power of Jesus. The exact thing that these people were opposed to. These are people who were enslaved to sin. And this is how the Bible describes sin. Enslaves us. It hooks us. And only in meeting Jesus did Paul break or see that same hatred cycle broken. And bringing this into the present, thinking of our own lives, maybe we're on the hatred side of the story like the Jews. Maybe we're thinking of taking revenge against someone who has opposed us. Or maybe holding grudges against people for extended periods of time. Hardening our hearts towards them. Never wanting to seek any form of reconciliation. And my bet is if that is you, it's probably a family member. Families have a way of creating such deep-rooted hardship and pain. And it's so difficult for us to seek reconciliation and to break the grudge and the hatred that might be in our hearts. And Paul knew in his situation, the same for us, that any way to find freedom would have to be through the gospel of Jesus, applying the wonderful truths of the gospel in order to be set free. In all our anger, in all our bitterness towards people, family members, colleagues, people who betray us, even church people, our healing is found in the gospel. The gospel allows us to see Jesus in the same position. He was a man betrayed by those close to him. He was a man opposed by people of his own nation, despised for his own, as a person. But he was innocent. And he shows us a way of love instead of retaliation, instead of hatred, instead of holding grudges. He shows us love again and again towards our enemies. And not only does he show us this, but he empowers us through the gospel of grace to have the same mind. And if you are in this hatred cycle, I invite you, I urge you to allow Jesus in. To see, what would the mind of Jesus look like in this situation? What would it look like for me to invite Jesus in? To bring him into the situation? How would it change? We might find ourselves on the other side of the story. Like Paul, we might find ourselves accused. Like Paul, falsely accused. And this is a difficult position to be in. I'm sure many of us have stories of false accusation. Some may be facing false accusations right now. 
I don't think any of us would say that we like to be falsely accused. More often than not, our first reaction is self-defense. Or maybe a counter-blow. We get upset, we get angry. Seeing Jesus in the midst of that situation is not our first inclination. We want to be justified. But how should we respond in a case of false accusation? Well, there aren't always quick answers to this question, but let's continue to look at the accusations laid against Paul and how he responds. In verse 7, it says that there were many and, um, and serious accusations laid against him. Just by way of summary, Paul was accused of a number of things, but the first was sedition. He was accused of going against Caesar, which is a serious political charge. He was accused of sectarianism, a sect apart from Roman rule that was not under the government's authority, the Roman Empire. And he was accused of sacrilege, that is, desecrating the temple. In one instance, bringing a Greek person, a Gentile, into the, the temple courts. All of which he said, no, I'm innocent. And Luke the writer shows us again and again that the Jews are wrong and the Romans knew it all along. But they never acted in integrity to spare Paul. And so it was a deeply unjust system. But we see that these accusations were, were not provable. That Paul was innocent of them all. Just like Jesus, at the same time of his trials, was innocent of the charges. And so one of the greatest struggles we face when facing false accusations and any injustice is to sin in response. Often our default is to sin in response to sin. When we are tempted, we might want to just take matters into our own hands, for example. We might want to respond in vengeful retaliation instead of trusting God for guidance, for His comfort, for His leading in a situation. We could lose hope and become desperate. We could lose hope and become angry, angry with the, uh, the accusers, but angry with God as well, instead of relying on the justice of God to prevail in that situation. There are so many sinful responses that we could respond with. And this was the same temptation for Paul, the same temptation for Jesus. But instead they entrusted themselves to God. And in facing false accusations and persecution, the Bible tells us again and again to entrust ourselves to God, to rely on His resources that only He can provide for us to live with integrity, but also to respond in love, which is so countercultural, so counterintuitive in a time of being accused. And at a broader theological level, I want to say that we all find ourselves accused. Jesus himself said in, verse, in John 15, verse 19, speaking to his disciples and those who would come, he said, You are not of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. These are strong words. The world will hate you. You are not of the world. The world representing sinful humanity opposed to God will hate us for following Jesus. We will face opposition. We will face opposition against uh, the truth of Jesus Christ. It is dangerous and a difficult thing to live in a, a godly life in an ungodly system. Because it stands as a conscience to the world. It pricks the conscience of the world. And our opposition, therefore, might come in various forms. I doubt it will be a mob or 40 assassins, um, as was Paul's case, trying to kill us. But we will face different forms of opposition 
For example, competing ethics and values in a world where ethics and values are changing. Sexual ethics, or the institution of marriage, or just being truthful and honest. There are a whole range of dilemmas that we may face in this world as those who are devoted to following Jesus. It could come as just outright hostility to being a Christian, maybe a colleague in your workplace, maybe living under a government, under a nation that is opposed to Christianity. It could come as accusations to the faith. Just someone saying, how could the Bible be reliable? Who is this Jesus you speak of? What is this resurrection? You're crazy. We see this in the next chapter where the King Agrippa says, Are you crazy, Paul? You're out of your mind. All this learning has made you mad. These accusations will come against us. It might even be false gospels. Gospels on the fringe of the truth, but are not truthful. Maybe a legalistic form of the gospel. Maybe a prosperity type gospel. How do we defend the gospel in situations like this? I'd say it takes great courage to be a Christian, as we all know. Because there is opposition. And what does opposition, what does our defense to such opposition look like? Let's look a little bit more at Paul's defense. The second point, the defense. From verse 8 all the way to the end. We see that in verse 8 Paul argues in his defense. He says, neither against the law, the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. He proclaims his innocence after facing these intense charges. He stands up to argue his defense by saying that he hasn't committed any offense that the, in that the gospel has not caused any offense to the temple, to the law, or Caesar. And so he claims he's innocent. This is very different to Jesus. If we know the story of Jesus' trial, Jesus does not defend himself. We know that Jesus was silent in the face of his accusers. And some, I guess, some Christians would assume that we should also be silent in the face of accusations. Pilate, the governor responsible for the trial of Jesus, was surprised that Jesus said nothing. Why would Jesus not defend himself? And I would say because the issue at stake in Jesus' trial was not his innocence. It was our guilt. He went as a sinless one to be convicted and sentenced to death for our sins. His condemnation, his crucifixion by a court that had actually declared him as innocent through Pilate is a powerful confirmation that Jesus died not for his own sins, but he died for the sins of others. This was not Paul's task. It is not our task to die for the sins of the world. There will be times where we simply must defend ourselves against false accusations that will come against us and against the faith and against the gospel. Not only does Paul defend himself from false accusations, but verse 19 shows us that he's defending the gospel, namely the resurrection of Jesus. And this is shown later, on, when Festus is speaking to King Agrippa. By way of summary, King Agrippa and his uh, stepsister and wife, I know, a little strange, comes on to the, not his stepsister, half-sister, even more strange, um, comes onto the scene and they want to have a meeting and they want to see Paul and hear his story. And what happens? Festus is explaining the story to Agrippa and he says in verse 19, Rather they, that is the Jews and, the Paul, and Paul, had certain points of dispute about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Here we see Paul defending the gospel at potentially great cost to himself. He is 
standing on his convictions and he is asserting the belief of the resurrection, which is essential to the gospel message, in the face of hostility. And what would that look like for us today? What might that look like in, in your context, your work context, your family context, your friendship context? What we do see is Paul is absolutely devoted to following God. He even said to Festus in verse 11, If I am a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape punishment. Wow, what a heart. He had committed his entire life into the hands of God. He had entrusted himself into the defense of God. In Paul's defense of the gospel, it's actually the gospel defending him. Let's look at this narrative a little bit more. Paul knew that what he was facing was unjust, that this trial was a sham. If we look at the evidence from verse 9 to verse 11, it says, But Festus, this is the judge, remember. But Festus, uh, sorry, if we can go to, yeah, that's good, that's good. From verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Festus, the governor, is now compromising between the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and Paul. Paul knows that this is a bad idea. He would need to stand trial before the Jews, and that would not end well. He understands that. So Paul says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so we see this judge who is wanting to do a favor for another group. The worst thing that can be said of any judge is this judge is wanting to do a favor for another group, which is whispered through the words of Luke in verse 9. And so we see again this evidence of injustice. This man Festus knew that Paul was innocent. Again and again in verse 18, verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, just to read them quickly. This is Festus talking. He says, When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in their case such, of such evils as I suppose. In verse 25, I found that he had done nothing deserving death. 26, But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. 27, For it seems to be unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Why wouldn't you just set him free? Why wouldn't you let him go? Because he was in a, a political headlock. He couldn't make that decision without really disrupting the peace, the connection that he had with the Jewish um, leadership at the time. And so Luke shows us again and again, he's an innocent man. He's faced with serious injustice. So what does Paul do? He has no other option. He appeals to Caesar. He appeals to the highest authority. He invokes an ancient right given to all Roman citizens that you can appeal to the direct judgment of the emperor. And once Paul had said those words in Roman law, Festus no longer had jurisdiction over him. Paul basically undercut all the attempts of the Jews to kill him. And now they have to be forced to go and present their case in Rome. Was this God leading Paul to do this? Absolutely. Was it direct? I don't know. What we do see is Paul using a legal pathway that existed to find justice and to further his mission. He knew that he was more likely to get justice from a Roman court than he would from a Jewish one. 
we also know that previously in Acts and other texts that Paul was, had a strong desire to go to Rome. In Acts 19, in Romans 1, in Romans 15. And also there was a promise from Jesus, from Jesus to Paul in Acts 23, that said that he would testify in Jerusalem, but he would also testify in Rome. Maybe this played into Paul's decision to appeal to Caesar because he knew he would get to Rome. But later on in Acts 28, which is to come in weeks to come, he made it, he said he made the decision reluctantly. He said he was constrained, if not forced, to appeal. He wanted to go to Rome, but I'm sure he wasn't thinking that it would be as a prisoner. And so the principle we draw from this, entrusting ourselves to God will often lead to different outcomes to what we expect. In the face of injustice, Paul's trust of God had led him to see a promise made to Jesus fulfilled, which he probably never thought would be fulfilled in this way. He was going to Rome. He had a free ticket, so to speak, but he wasn't free. And this is the path that God had prepared for him. It was a path of uncertainty, of suffering, of trials. But Jesus' words to him came to pass from Acts 23, verse 11. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And God leads us down difficult paths. Isn't it interesting how God answers prayers in ways that are totally different to what we expect? A difficult path, for example. Think of your life. Think of your potential Rome. The Rome that God might have in store for you. What might that look like? Think of the obstacles that lie before you. Think of possible injustice facing you. Think of opportunities to live for God, to defend the gospel in the way you live your lives, in the way you proclaim the gospel. Where might that lead? What might that end look like? I'd venture to say, in trusting God, you will be surprised. You'll be surprised to see how he bears fruit through such situa situations like that. And he is trustworthy. That we can trust him even in the face of injustice to fulfill his purposes. And so the big question for us, going back to the sermon title, is how do we defend the gospel in the face of any opposition? Well, we can draw so many principles. One principle we see from this text is that Paul is a man who has incredible courage. Even in the face of death, he has courage. And courage comes from faith. Courage is born of faith. It's born out of a confidence in God. A belief that God is running his life. That nothing need bother us because we can trust and rely on God. This is where courage is born. And any defense of the gospel will require courage. There's a lot written on this. How to defend the gospel. Especially in the face of opposition. And Peter was one such man. In 1 Peter 3 verse 14 to 17, he gives us insights in this context of facing unjust persecution. He says, this is how you should do it. In verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. This is Paul. He's suffering for righteousness sake. We might suffer for the same sake. And he says this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. First point, Take courage. Don't fear. Don't be anxious. Don't be troubled. Take courage. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Second point, be prepared. In order for us to defend the gospel, we need to know the gospel. We need to know how to articulate it. We need to know 
how to defend it. We need to know how to clarify it. Know the gospel. Be prepared. In a sense, have that little gospel package in the back pocket that you can pull out and be able to defend or proclaim. How do we do it? Verse 3. Sorry, not verse 3. Point 3. With gentleness and respect. Gentleness being as meekness, this humility, as opposed to dominance or overbearing or rude. And this is coupled with respect, a respect for the truth, of course, but a deep respect for the individual as well. Francis Schaeffer, a well-known theologian, used to say that after a debate with an atheist or even a, a differing theologian, he hoped that the one person would walk away with two equally clear impressions. And the first was that Francis Schaeffer really disagreed with him, and the second, Francis Schaeffer really cared about him. And so the truth was defended, and the person was accepted or respected. And I believe this should be our aim. The world must observe that we don't just differ in the sense that we love, want to differ in the sense that we love the smell of the arena or a good debate, but it's because this is a means for us to love others for God's sake. And lastly, if we read on in verse 16, it says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. Having a clear conscience, which I think is point four, it's really a life that is lived above reproach. It's a life that is free from accusation. And this is Paul's life in verse 7. There was an absence of proof. He was above reproach. Nothing stuck. The defense of the gospel is shown through a life that is lived in absolute devotion of Jesus. Does it mean perfection? No. Nope. It means humble way of life, living before Jesus, making mistakes, repenting of them, offending people and apologizing for them, living a life of love, living a life of humility, following Jesus, the perfect example. Defending the gospel is not just our words. It's the way we live our lives. Paul's testimony was one of innocence. We can defend the gospel through a life that is lived according to the gospel. Which brings me to the final point, the advocate. We can't do any of what I've just said alone. It's impossible. God is the means for us to live any life that is worthy of the gospel. He's the only means by which we can live a life that is above reproach and therefore defend the gospel. And He is our advocate. And you may ask, well, what's an advocate? Well, in the biblical sense, it's a Greek word that has been translated as advocate. It's parakletos. Parakletos is a well-known Greek word in, in Christian circles, and it, it means one who comes alongside one who pleads another's cause, one who helps another by defending or comforting them, someone who advocates for someone. And the Bible describes God in many ways as an advocate. He's our true advocate in the sense that He is our defense when we are faced with accusations and against hostility. In this story, Paul seems to be his advocate, but is he really? In the defense of the gospel, the gospel's defending him. In our defense of the gospel, the gospel is defending us. And through the gospel, we have the greatest advocate. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see the Father who orchestrates everything. A few sermons back, Paul said, sorry, not Paul, Perch said that God's plans are, un, are unfoilable, which is, I don't even know if that's a real word, but they are unfoilable plans. They will prevail. 
There are numerous examples in the book of Acts to show who's running the show. It's not Festus. It's not Felix. It's God. God made a promise that he would get Paul to Rome. We see in Acts 23, just this crazy story of Paul's nephew, just probably skateboarding down the streets of Jerusalem, overhearing this... Uh, he wasn't really skateboarding. Okay, hearing this conversation about an ambush in intending to kill Paul. And he goes and speaks to the centurion, he speaks to the tribune, and the tribune arranges this, this army escort to take him from Rome to Caesarea. Sorry, not Rome. Um, Jerusalem to Caesarea. Incredible. Is this not God working to protect, to place, to do his sovereign work behind the scenes? This is the Father that can be trusted. We can place our faith in him. He has a plan, it will prevail. His plan is for His glory, and we are a part of it. We are in His story, and He is the author. And this is an incredible comfort, that we can find rest in the Advocate, the one behind the scenes orchestrating it all. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is our Advocate. John 16, verse 26, also in the context of facing unjust opposition and persecution, we see that the Holy Spirit is described as the Helper, Parakletos, the Advocate, who will come. It says, When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the very beginning. We have help. We have the help of the Holy Spirit to defend the Gospel. We're not left to our own devices, our own wits, our own uh, argumentative or debating skills. The Holy Spirit helps us to defend the gospel in what we say and in how we live. He is our empowerment. A short story just to illustrate this idea of the advocate beside us. A few years ago, I got embroiled in a, a little a courtroom drama myself. I had not paid my $16 road tax. I, had, I was guilty of not checking my post box for about three months. There probably are a few of us here. I was traveling, and when I did eventually open my post box by some miraculous means, uh, so I never check it, I found four letters of different colors, all of them increasing in severity, saying that I should pay my road tax. Second one, you better pay your road tax. Third one, if you don't pay your road tax, you're going to get in big trouble. And the last one saying, I want to see you in court tomorrow. There's no more chance to pay your road tax. So it was too late. I was on the day before I had to appear in court to pay my $16 road tax fee. I was freaking out, as you can imagine. I contacted my CG, and every good CG at RHC has a few lawyers. <laughs> I had a few, and they immediately advocated for me. Stacy Lopez, Rachel Tan, they said, we will be your advocates. We will dress in black and white, and we will meet you at the court tomorrow. I've never felt so reassured. <laughs> Walking into the court with two lawyers, my advocates by my side, sitting down on the bench with the tattooed, shaven head, big guys who are all in trouble. I was one of them. <laughs> my advocates going right to the back, speaking to the clock, I would assume, not the judge, but all I could see was that things were happening in the back. They were advocating for me. They were my protection. They were my shield against the, the, the law in the sense, which was just. <laughs> it was an unjust persecution. They came back to me and they said, it's okay. We've secured an adjournment and we've secured a possibility of an appeal. 
you can pay the compounded fee and all will be good, no criminal record. I just want to say those advocates were amazing. And that story reminds me time and time again that we have an advocate. We have an advoca advocate that's, who is better than Stacy and Rachel, even though they were great. At a cosmic level, I want to say to all today, we all stand accused. We are all in a heavenly trial. We are accused because of our sins. Satan himself is called the accuser. He stands and he persecutes and prosecutes. He accuses us because of our sins before God. For those who have not put their faith in Jesus, there is no advocate. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, there's an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's our advocate. He pleads our case. He presents himself as payment for our sins so that the penalty against us is absorbed by him as a substitute because he is righteous. And this is the wonderful truth of the gospel. This is how the gospel defends us on a daily basis. The good news that Jesus has paid for our sins. He is the greatest advocate. And for the, anyone who does not believe in Jesus today, any unbelievers here, for those who do not know him, I urge you to consider placing your faith in him. To believe that he died for your sins so that you don't have to pay the penalty. You don't have to pay the penalty for those sins. And this means repenting of your sins. It means turning away from them, stopping those sins, and in turn putting your faith in Jesus, trusting in him as your perfect advocate before the Father. And in conclusion, yes, we are all called to defend the gospel in what we say, in what we do in our lives. But I want to remind you, the gospel defends us. And this is why Paul was so secure. This is why he was able to give his defense with such courage, such clarity. He was even willing to die for that testimony. It's because of Jesus, a one who faced such incredible hostility but didn't grow weary, one who faced injustice but entrusted himself to the will of God, one who stood firm when he was being opposed. And he's the one we lean on. He's the one we learn from. He's the one who walks with us as our advocate. This brings us to a close. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer and entrust ourselves to God. God, we are so grateful for everything you provide. We know that the world you've called us into is hostile at times, hostile to the truth of who you are. And you've called us to defend the gospel in the way we live and what we say. And Father, we know that you are truly our support and our strength, that you help us to do just that. I don't know the situations of everyone here, Lord, but you do. You know the situations we might find ourselves, whether it be the hatred side, hating others, opposed, um, potentially holding deep grudges against people, even those on the accused side, those who feel like they are being um, oppressed by injustice in the workplace and in whatever other area. God, I, I look to you. We look to you as our help, as our support, as the one who helps to defend us that we may live a life that is worthy of the gospel and the calling we have received. We thank you for all of your strength that you provide, everything you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.